Well, last uh, July in our study through the book of Acts, I, I preached a message uh, about the intersection of the natural with the supernatural. We were in uh, chapter 12 of Acts at the time. It was uh, the story of uh, Peter's miraculous angelic rescue from prison. And we talked about seeing the supernatural and the reality of the spiritual realm back then. Um, we talked about what the Bible had to say about angels and demons and the unseen forces that are all around us. Um, and we said that there's an unseen element to the spiritual battles that we face. It's real. It's powerful. And in some cases, it's very serious. Uh, I think we all know that. We certainly, if you've been in church uh, uh, much at all in your journey and been in a Bible teaching church, you understand the reality of spiritual warfare. But I think we often sort of ignore it or, or downplay it, or in some cases completely are unaware of it. But this morning, as we continue our journey through Acts, we come once again to a bizarre intersection of the seen and the unseen. And uh, I'm going to call this Behind Enemy Lines, because we're going to witness this morning in this account from the early days of the church, uh, some supernatural activity from the enemy's camp. And uh, in Acts 12, our vantage point had been uh, from that of angels, but today we're going to get a glimpse of that battle from the demonic side of things. The fact is, we have an enemy. And, you know, some people, uh, I think, obsess over the spiritual realm uh, and the other end of the continuum is some people ignore it altogether. Uh, most of us are probably somewhere in the middle. Uh, but I believe in these great last days that are ratcheting up toward the return of Christ, and there's no question that's the case, that these spiritual realities are becoming more and more visible, more and more active. The battle lines have been drawn, and there are activities uh, happening all around us uh, at increasing intensity and increasing uh, speed. And so uh, I talk about this uh, in uh, my book series, Spirit of the Antichrist. And, you know, if there's one takeaway, I mean, different chapters in those books, do, you know, resonate with different people. And I know we all have kind of our pet issues and projects and things that we love to think about. Um, but if there's one underlying theme to all of that, it, it's that Satan hates God, he hates you, and he wants to take over this world and have it for himself. And that's a spiritual battle. And um, so, you know, when we talk about going behind enemy lines, what I really want us to see today is that before you venture behind enemy lines, before you dabble in this reality of the spiritual warfare that is going on, there's some things that we might want to consider and some things that I think are illustrated in this strange account that we're going to read about here in just a moment. So there's some, some principles uh, to remember. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 19. I'll put uh, most of the verses on the screen, uh, but I always encourage you to bring your Bibles if you can and uh, follow along. If you don't have a Bible or if you know someone that needs a Bible, we've got some uh, brand new Bibles out on the uh, uh, information table out in the lobby. Feel free to take those. Um, but let me put this in context before we dive into the text. 
So the year is A.D. 56. So if you're tracking with us in the history of the church, you know the church was founded in 33 A.D., so now we're 23 years into the church. It's specifically mid to late April of the year 56, and Paul is about to start the final year of his third missionary journey. So he had departed from their home base with Silas in the spring of 53, and ultimately that journey, uh, which was about the same uh, length of time as his second journey, uh, ends in 57 A.D. So, but at this point, uh, he's in Ephesus. It's, uh, uh, you know, and he's, by the way, he spent over two years there. I think we talked about that last week, two years and eight months, uh, which was more than half of the four years of his third uh, journey. Uh, he meets some of John's disciples uh, here in verses 1 through 7. We won't take the time uh, to read it, but it's interesting. These were uh, believers who had uh, been around, or at least people who had been around before Christ's death and resurrection. They had heard John the Baptist speak. They had followed his teaching. You need to understand not everybody that was baptized in John the Baptist's ministry was really a believer who understood that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And these were in that category because uh, Paul addresses them and they say, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. What, what are you talking about? So he explains the gospel, they get saved, and then there was about 12 of them in all that were uh, saved. Um, but then he, as you kind of sit in the immediate context here in verses 8 to 10, he, he moves on and he preaches in the synagogue at first. He runs into some trouble there, not uncommon, as we've read about many times on his journeys. Uh, some people who spoke evil of the way kind of got stirred up trouble. And so he, he left the synagogue and he moved to a neutral site uh, where he could preach the gospel. And it was a school that was owned and operated by a guy named Tyrannus. And uh, literally that means tyrant. We don't know what where this guy got that name. Clearly he was open to biblical teaching or open to the teaching of the apostles. Uh, so some have speculated maybe it was a nickname that his students had given him. <laughs> you know, this guy's a tyrant, you know, maybe it was. Um, so, but uh, we know from other outside of scripture, other historical evidence that while Paul was there in the school in uh, Tyrannus, that he taught every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m teaching people about grace and about the Lord. Um, that was a common time when people would take their break, you know, during the heat of the day, come into the shade, and this is when they would gather together to hear Paul speak. Now we pick it up in uh, verse 11. Let me just read the text, and then we'll uh, draw some applications from it. Verse 11, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord, uh, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, quote, We exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit 
was, leaped on them, overpowered them, and railed against them so that they fled from the house naked and wounded. This became known both to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds, and also many who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. It was the value of these magic books that they burned. So the word of the Lord grew mightily and uh, prevailed. So uh, the first thing I want you to notice in the introduction here, verses 11 and 12, is that these were unusual miracles. Now, we, I talk about this in my new book series, that in any time there's a major shift in God's plan of the ages, what Ephesians 3 calls dispensations, you see an uptick in spiritual activity. So this was the early days of the church. It was the apostolic age. The whole Bible had not been written yet. Uh, there was still revelatory information happening. And so it was natural to see this uptick in activity. And as we're going to see, especially in Ephesus, this was quite uh, common. And, uh, but now here we are at the end of the age, and it's my contention, based on the signs of the times, which Jesus tells us to look at, that we're also on the verge of a, of a shift. We're on the verge of the return of Christ as we see the stage being set. But Luke refers to these miracles as unusual. Uh, the NIV and the NASB, as you know, I'm teaching from the New King James, but the NIV and the NASB say extraordinary. Well, that's actually a pretty good word for it, too, because in Greek, the word unusual here that you see on the screen is three words, and a literal translation would be not the common kind or not the ordinary kind. And so that's why some English translations choose to translate it extraordinary. And you might be thinking, well, aren't all miracles extraordinary well they are but that just tells you that these were particularly strange it was to the church in Ephesus that Paul later wrote his famous instructions about spiritual warfare remember he had spent well over two years here almost three years and Ephesus was a hotbed of satanic activity and so it's, it's helpful sometimes to correlate the New Testament epistles with when they're written and to whom they're written. By the way, where we are right now today in our study through Acts and Acts 19, it's while Paul was in Ephesus that he wrote 1 Corinthians, the first letter of the Corinthians. We're going to talk about that in a second. But uh, So these were some strange things that were going on, and it's going to get even weirder as you picked up on when we read the text a moment ago. But there are some things to remember before going behind enemy lines. Four things in particular that I can see uh, illustrated in this package. The first thing we need to remember is that spiritual warfare is not something to trifle with. It's serious. It's not something to take lightly. It's not a game. It's very real. And with the proper biblical understanding of it, we ought to all engage every day in this reality of spiritual warfare. That's the reason Paul gives us the weapons of our spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. But for many people that don't understand just how serious it is, they just trifle with it like it's a Milton Bradley game or something. Now listen to what we read in verse 13. Some of the Jewish itinerant exorcists took it upon themselves 
took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. And they were saying, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Well, the fact of the matter is it doesn't work that way. These were opportunists. They were trifling with this, almost making light of it, thinking how simple it is to make a quick buck. The, the use of magical names and incantations to exercise evil spirits was very common in the ancient world, and it's very common today. And it seems to have been particularly prominent around Ephesus. But these Jewish exorcists made a living out of casting out demons. Uh, most of it was a hoax, just like today. But by the way, some of it was real. Did you realize that Satan and his demons many times can mimic and achieve some of the same types of supernatural things in the supernatural realm that God does? We understand God's sovereign. We understand that ultimately God's already won the battle, that ultimately God is going to return in the form of Christ and take the throne. We get the full picture, and those of us that believe the Bible understand how it ends, but Satan is deceived. And the worst kind of deception is self-deception. He doesn't believe that it's going to end that way, even though he knows the Bible. He just doesn't believe it. He still thinks that he can win this battle, and it's a supernatural battle. And you know, we go back to, for example, in, in the Exodus with Pharaoh and the evil... The satanic magicians, they were able to mimic just about everything case for case that God's prophets did. So we shouldn't be surprised that these Jewish exorcists were going around making a living, casting out demons, and some of it was real. And when they saw Paul's power through the name of Jesus Christ, they said, ah, here's a new, a new toy, a new tool. Here's a new incantation we can throw into our bag of tricks, and maybe we can get something out of it. I, uh, in volume two uh, of my book, Spirit of the Antichrist, um, I'm not trying to sell a book here. We're going to give people the Plum Creek Chapel, but this is some pretty powerful stuff. And I tell the story of uh, a man who I call uh, Paul, which is kind of confusing now to think about it because we're talking about the Apostle Paul, no connection. He just asked me to use that as a pseudonym. But I interviewed him several times and uh, he talks about his 49-year uh, battle with demonic entities, and it will blow you away. This guy's a believer now. <laughs> got saved 12 years ago, but uh, uh, it's a powerful story. And the point here is that we should never trifle with spiritual warfare. We need to understand just how serious this battle is. It is real. And, you know, after the rapture, when the... the Antichrist is indwelt by Satan and the Antichrist rules the world at the behest of Satan. We're going to see all sorts of bizarre supernatural things in the final lead up to the Battle of Armageddon. We become, I think, dull to the reality of it because, especially here in the West, we're conditioned by you know, propaganda and mainstream media and mind control and all the things that, that just go through the day and very seldom do we realize that you know, we're part of a cosmic battle between the forces of good and the forces of evil. And that battle is going to heat up if you believe what the Bible teaches. And the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work in the world today. But this phrase, took it upon themselves, is one word in Greek. It's funny, sometimes multiple words in the original text in Greek are translated with one word in English, and sometimes it goes the other way. But epikaireo is the word, and it literally means to, to try your hand at, to give it a shot. 
It's only used three times in the New Testament, but that's what these exorcists thought they would do. They're going to give it a shot. Now, they didn't know what they were trifling with. So you go back to the text. They say, uh, you know, we're going to try to exorcise you by the Jesus that this guy over here is talking about. They had no idea who Jesus was. But they said, hey, if it works for Paul, why not give it a try? Maybe it'll work for us. And by the way, this is it's the way some people think they can get saved. They don't really know who Jesus is, but they think that the, the pathway to eternal life is, a, is, is, is multiple roads and that some people say Allah, some people say Buddha, some people say Christianity, some people say Judaism. We're going to just choose Christianity because it kind of sounds good, you know. So we'll just start going to a Christian church and they, they think that somehow they can commend themselves to a holy God just because they're kind of playing the game. But... If you want to go to heaven, you've got to know who Jesus is. You've got to know that he's the son of God who took your place on the cross, died a cruel death, paying your penalty for sin, rose from the dead the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and that in purchasing, death with his, purchasing life with his own blood, he alone has the authority to forgive your sin and give you eternal life. And if you know that Jesus, and you place your trust in that Jesus, you can be saved. But these exorcists uh, decided to go behind enemy lines. I mean, they were already there, but they decided really to engage this spiritual battle on a whole new level. Um, but they needed to make sure that someone had their back, namely Jesus. Now, someone did have Paul's back. That's why he could, uh, with great authority, apostolic authority no less, could claim to heal people in the name of Jesus. But these characters uh, had no clue. As I mentioned, Paul would later write back, to Ephesus, these words. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So to these Jewish exorcists, it was just a means to an end. It was a way to make a living. Uh, I doubt very seriously that they had seen what they were about to see uh, before in the spiritual battle. We have to understand that there are a limited number of fallen angels that Satan has at his behest. We also need to remember that Satan is not omniscient or omnipresent or omnipotent. So there's a lot of evil things that go on, the, on in the world, and it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a demon behind the scenes orchestrating that. There are a limited number of demons. Only one-third of the angels that I'm about to show you fell when Satan fell from heaven. And uh, so we sometimes, that's what I mean when people take it too far and, and to the extreme and they think there's a demon behind every bush. But for those of you who are quick to ridicule and brush aside those extremists, you need to hear this warning, and that is sometimes there is a demon behind the bush. <laughs> and you, you want to be aware of the spiritual battle. And you don't want to trifle with it. And... You know, I, I hesitate to bring this up because we always have new folks here, or guests, and I don't know where everyone is and their viewpoint on some of these things, but I, I just want to, as gracious as I can, as I can speak uh, my heart and I, for the folks that are live streaming or watching the video, I think if you're trifling with Halloween, you need to understand you're trifling with Satan's favorite holiday. This is some sick demonic stuff. That's when more demons burst through the realm of the invisible into the realm of the visible than at any other time. And I, I just encourage you to really pray and think about that and do the research on that. But 
since the days that Jesus walked the earth, uh, and really long before that, if you go back to the Old Testament times, many people have understood that there is another realm to this world that we live in that is a dangerous place indeed. Now, we don't need to fear it because uh, greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. We've already won the victory. But that's what I mean about keeping in mind these principles before you go behind enemy lines. But many people understand the reality of this spiritual warfare. The English poet Alexander Pope in 1709 gave us the famous phrase, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Now in the context, he was actually writing an essay called An Essay on Criticism where he was targeting the literary critics of his day who had dared to criticize him. So he wasn't necessarily referring about spiritual warfare here, but Nevertheless, uh, he knew what he was talking about. And this phrase has gone on to have application for those talking about the spiritual realm. There are some places that we have no business going, at least not unprepared and unaware. So what do we know about angels? I think it's good to kind of review this. We talked about this in July uh, when we were looking at Acts chapter 12. And I also get into this in great detail in Volume 1. But the biblical teaching on angels looks like this. So, you know, it starts with all angels. Then some of the angels fell with Satan from heaven. And, and these are called demons. And uh, that was one-third of the total number of angels. So one-third of the angels are uh, fallen angels. Two-thirds of them are unfallen. Angels do not procreate. They're the same number of angels today as there was when God created them. Angels are not eternal. Only God is eternal. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son eternally exists in three persons and exists outside of time, space, and matter. He spoke creation into existence, and that's when the angels were uh, created. If we take a look at the unfallen angels first, the good guys, you know, the, what we commonly call angels, the Bible has quite a lot to say about them. There's different ranks of angels. You've got, uh, you know, the, the archangel, Michael, um, the great prince is what he's called in Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel 10, he's called Michael, your prince. He's probably uh, the only one at this rank, although there's some extra biblical teaching that talks about other uh, archangels, but we don't know if that's true or not. It's not part of the inspired teach, uh, revelation of God. Um, but uh, from best we can tell, Michael is sort of the archangel that is the protector of Israel. And we've got uh, chief princes. This is a group of superior angels uh, that sort of implies a ranking system. And, uh, and it's, as best we can tell, Michael, who's called the archangel, was the top of the chief princess. So he was in that category. Then we've got Gabriel, who is a special kingdom messenger. And each of the four times that he appears in the Bible, he seems to be talking about God's kingdom program and what's to come. And then you've got the cherubim and seraphim, the divine attendants that uh, have indescribable power and beauty and talk about God's glory and proclaim uh, God's glory and are guardians of uh, God's glory. By the way, we know from Ezekiel that Satan, who is an angel, was a cherub before he fell. So he was one of these divine attendants. And then he began to covet in his heart. He wanted to be the one sitting on the throne. He wanted all the attention that, that the created realm was giving the creator. And he tried to uh, execute a coup. And God quashed the, the, the coup pretty easily, and Satan took one-third of the angels with him. And they are now fighting and continuing this battle from earth, which is Satan's playground. He's the prince of darkness, the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, 
1 uh, Corinthians 4, 4, or 2 Corinthians 4, 4 talks about. Uh, the Bible says the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one. This is the devil's uh, playground. Uh, so if we look at those fallen angels, the one-third that joined to Satan, these, of course, are the bad guys, and the Bible gives us some information about them. So of these fallen angels, a certain number of them remain loose and active, and they're the ones, kind of the legion, that are helping Satan in this battle. And so when we talk about things like demon possession, demon influence, demonic activity, these are the group that we're talking about. But a certain number of them are imprisoned. And uh, so Satan's not working with the full complement of the one-third that followed him. He's lost some uh, along the way. Uh, if you remember uh, in Luke chapter 8, when Jesus cast out the demons from uh, the two demoniacs uh, at the Gadarenes, they uh, begged him, don't send us to the abyss. Do you remember that? The abyss is the bottomless pit. And that's where some angels are currently uh, imprisoned in the abyss. And uh, they didn't want to go there. They wanted to have their freedom. And so Jesus uh, you know, gave them their wish and kept them out of the abyss and cast them into a herd of swine, if you remember the story. So there's those. Those that are in the abyss will be released in the final days, final years before Christ returns, the final three and a half years of the tribulation period. Uh, Satan is going to be given the key to the abyss and he's going to go down and he's going to let them loose for this final battle of Armageddon. So they're not available now, but they will be uh, someday. But then some of these demons are permanently imprisoned. These are the ones who left their proper domain in Genesis 6, cohabited with human women and caused the wrath of God to become so severe that he judged the world with a flood. The global flood it was because of these angels. And God permanently has uh, reserved them in hell uh, in this place of prison called Tartarus. They will be released when they're cast into the everlasting lake of fire, which Jesus says was prepared for the devil and his angels. In the book of Enoch, which again is not inspired, it's not part of the Bible, but it does provide some interesting corollaries and things uh, such as they are, uh, it, reminds, it, it reminds us that at Tartarus, uh, it's the, the book of Enoch says, Here the angels who are mingling with the women shall stand, and their spirits becoming multiform shall treat the men with indignity, and, and they will lead them astray to burn incense to the demons until the great decision in which they will be judged so as to bring about perfection. So even extra-biblical literature uh, refers to this event from Genesis 6. The book of Jude in the New Testament refers to it, the book of Second Peter, and someday they will be uh, they will be judged. But today, the ones that we are dealing with in this spiritual warfare, this spiritual battle, are what we call demons. And the Bible mentions the prince of demons, Satan. Uh, mentions principalities in Ephesians 6. That's the first rank, the highest rank. Then there's powers, which are those that have certain authority over certain uh, regions. Then we have the rulers of darkness. Those are the ones with special rulership in the present age. <coughs> Excuse me. Remember, and I talked about this briefly in the first hour, but uh, the present church age, the Bible has a lot to say about the metaphor of light versus darkness. You know, we're to be a light in this perverse world, Paul tells us as believers, uh, by trusting in Christ and Him alone for salvation. We have uh, been transferred to the, the kingdom of light. Um, you know, in 1 John 3, it talks about if you're abiding in Christ, you're walking in the light. If you're in sin, you're abiding in darkness. 
So there's this sense in which there's darkness. I talk about this a lot in the new book and talk about how you know the, the Luciferians in, in, that are involved with Satan in this conspiracy to take over the world, they love darkness and they love secrecy. And they love to lurk in the shadows and work behind the scenes and lie and deceive. And that's the rulers of the darkness of this age. And then we have spiritual hosts of wickedness, which refers to particularly evil uh, demons. And so spiritual warfare is serious. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not a game. And it's heating up. And, and we better take it serious, but we better take it serious through a biblical worldview and not trifle with it. But as we read on in this fascinating account, we need to remember a second thing, and that is the enemy does not care who you are. He doesn't give a hoot who you are. Satan and his legion of demons are not easily impressed. They don't care who you are, how important you are on this earth, how powerful you are, how much money you have, how big and strong you may be. You're on their playground now. And they will eat your lunch. So here's these seven sons of Sceva, uh, a Jewish chief priest. Now, he was not uh, a literal high priest. Uh, we know the, the Jewish high priest and the lineage there. But he, 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 he probably took this name as part of his deception, as part of his carnival freak show to try to make money casting out demons. And so he was referred to as a high priest, but he wasn't actually a high priest. He was a self-styled Jewish high priest. And, uh, and you know, it, it helped his, his enterprise if he could pass himself off as a high priest. You know, this wasn't, this was way before technology and the printing press and those kinds of things. You couldn't just go on to Google and say, oh, let's see if this guy's really a high priest. It just didn't work that way. So people believed him. Um, but... You know, he, he kind of tries to get in on the game and notice what this demonic spirit says. Uh, excuse me, uh, who are you? You know, I know Jesus, and demons know Jesus quite well. And they knew Paul, because Paul was an apostle. God's hand of blessing was on him. He was a prophet. He, God was using him in that age. Plus, they had no doubt known the old Paul, Saul. Who are you? So the, the demon uh, was unimpressed by these imposters. So again, if you're going to go behind enemy lines, you better make sure Jesus has your back. And so that's, you know, what we read in Peter is, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Um, if you do not understand spiritual warfare and the biblical teaching on it. If you don't understand who you are in Christ, your identity in Christ, and what the weapons of your warfare are, then the devil and his angelic accomplices will eat you for lunch. And that leads us to the third principle. Not only the enemy does not care who you are, but apart from Jesus, the enemy will always prevail. We can't win a spiritual battle without spiritual weapons. And going behind enemy lines without Jesus to watch your back is beyond dangerous. It's hopeless. I mean, in this case, think about it. It was seven against one. And actually, it was more than that. It was the seven sons of uh, Sceva, but it was these other unnamed itinerant Jewish exorcists as well. 
We don't know how many of them there were, but let's just be conservative and say it was 10 to 1. 10 secular Jewish magicians against one evil spirit. And guess what? The evil spirit prevailed easily, handily, decisively, embarrassingly. Here's what happened. So the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. I mean, imagine the scene. All of these witch doctors are running scared out of their witch naked out of the house. I mean, that's a real manifestation of spiritual warfare. And if you think that was just the stuff of the apostolic age, you're naive and you don't know church history and you certainly don't know what's going on all around the world and especially in the United States today with the Luciferian conspiracy. Satan has earthly accomplices that are out there involved in all kinds of satanic ritual abuse, uh, child sacrifice, I mean, and we're getting more and more of a glimpse of this, and the Luciferians are trying harder and harder to keep a lid on it. That's one of the many reasons that a lot of experts, and, and I, not necessarily an expert, but I include myself in this camp, believe that we're getting closer and closer and closer. And that's why Jesus said to watch the signs of the times. Without Christ, we're nothing. With Christ, the tables are completely turned. And Paul wrote, 2 Corinthians, about three to four months later, after leaving Ephesus, uh, he wrote 1 Corinthians while he was in Ephesus, but he wrote 2 Corinthians a little bit later, so same general context. The encounter between this demon and the seven sons of Sceva was no doubt still fresh in his mind, and he had spiritual warfare on the mind, and listen to what he says. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. He's talking there about Satan ultimately. And today, anytime we exalt ourselves pridefully, we're mimicking the one that was the first and greatest example of pride and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So in the context, Paul in this letter is contrasting living in the world with, with living as if you're, you are the world, living like a worldling, we might say. Uh, we talked about being in the world and not of it not too long ago in our study. But carnal weapons are ineffective in spiritual warfare. Reliance on God and His power is the only way that you can achieve supernatural victories. And, and, and the spiritual Christians' warfare are those that Paul listed in Ephesians 6 that we looked at briefly a moment ago. And so like he does in Ephesians 6, Paul is describing the enemy here as impersonable. We wage war against an invisible, intangible, spiritual forces. Though obviously Satan is behind these forces, but Satan's strategy is not only to use demons, but also human co-conspirators that David talked about a thousand years before Christ in Psalm chapter 2. He also uses speculations, theories, arguments, ignorance and any incorrect information that contradicts God's lies I mean God's truth revealed in the Bible uh, and, and that's lies if you contradict God's truth and that's why I get you know so concerned when I see otherwise intelligent believers Christians 
you know, celebrating Halloween and putting up all these demonic pictures and apparitions and stuff and, and think, oh, this is fun, it's cute. Let's scare the neighborhood kids. Well, I mean, the Bible says God's not given us a spirit of fear. <laughs> Why would you want to encourage people to have a spirit that God doesn't want you to have? I don't get it. When it comes to spiritual warfare, there's no shortage of books or speculative wisdom about the subject, but as we see here, only God has the power to defeat the enemy, and He does it through His eternal Son, Jesus Christ, who is within us if you know the Lord. Again, Paul is writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, the same time that he's experiencing this story that we just read about with the seven sons of Sceva. And uh, he wrote this just before he leaves Ephesus, just before the riot, which we're going to look at next time, later on in, in the next section of chapter 19. But he says that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. There are a lot of people that are unbelievers, and sadly even some believers, who think they can engage like these exorcists in spiritual warfare apart from the truth of God's word. And so they read the magic books, they, they get involved in you know, Wiccan or other, you know, uh, satanic religions, and they, uh, they, they immerse themselves in that culture. But none of that matters. It's only the power of God. The second letter, again, three to four months later, he says, we have this treasure in earth and vessels that, in, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. If you think this physical battle, I mean, this physical body and anything you can lay your hands on, is going to help in the spiritual battle, it, it's, you're crazy. This is just an earthen vessel. Now, there are battles in the physical realm that we sometimes have to engage in that are ultimately rooted in the devil. And in that case, sometimes a nice 357 or 44 can really come in handy to do battle in the physical realm. But when you're not, you're, you're, your 9 mil is not going to help with these demonic entities. Uh, they're no match. But God is a match. Uh, Romans 15, Paul says, and I'm using the NASB here, we, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in the power of signs and wonders in the power of the Spirit. He wrote Romans, after leaving Ephesus, after 2 Corinthians, Six or seven months later. So he writes 1 Corinthians in Ephesus, 2 Corinthians about three and a half months later, and then six or seven months later, after leaving Ephesus, he writes Romans. He's still on his third journey at this point, and he knew all about the power of Christ in spiritual warfare. Went back to Ephesians, which he wrote later from prison. He's writing back to Ephesus, and he says, What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? And, you know, in the Spirit of the Antichrist series, I'm essentially reminding readers that Satan uh, is not going to win this battle. And guess what? I'm reminding Satan of that, too. Uh, that Christ, not him, has dominion over this earth. That Christ has won the victory. That Christ is going to one day rule the world. And one day after the eternal state, everyone on earth will worship him. Did you realize that even though Satan's going to rule over an earthly uh, seven-year satanic kingdom, not everybody's going to worship him. Not everybody's going to take the mark of the beast during that time. There will be many millions of people who trust in Christ 
And many of them are martyred. And some of them hide out and survive. But he won't get full participation. Only Christ will do that when he comes back. And, um, you know, that's the reason we chose Halloween as the release date for the, the new volume, is that we just want to remind Satan, look, hope all you want. It's not going to happen. In Ephesians 1, Paul says, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion. In chapter 6, Paul's going to describe, of Ephesians, Paul's going to describe those levels of demons, which we looked at just a moment ago, principalities, powers, so forth. But guess who's head of all of them? Who's over all of them? Christ himself. There's no other name like the name of Christ. If he, in Philippians, written around the same time as Ephesians, one of the prison epistles, he says, Therefore God hath also ex highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. That's the reason those demons said to those fake magicians, well, Jesus we know, but who are you? That the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So we need to remember before going behind enemy lines that apart from Jesus, the enemy will always prevail. And then finally, one more thing we need to remember, and that is spiritual warfare has consequences. Spiritual warfare has consequences. It's really interesting to see what happens next. This intersection between the natural and the supernatural had consequences for the people involved and for everyone in Ephesus. Now, what were some of those consequences? Well, first of all, people feared God. When they saw this spiritual battle burst over into the realm of the visible, they feared God. And Jesus' name, secondly, was magnified. I mean, news reports of this event greatly elevated the reputation of Jesus among all the Ephesians, both Jews and Gentiles. And even though the enemy won this little skirmish, it still drew people to God because it showed the futility of battling the enemy apart from Christ. You know, we don't know why God is allowing this battle to go on as long as he has. We wish that he'd come back today. Uh, my best guess is that he just wants to allow more time for people to come to faith. Because once, we, once the rapture happens and we enter the final phase of God's plan of the ages, time is really short and it's going to be very difficult for people to come to faith. So God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. Maybe that's the reason that he's allowing things to go on the way they are. But for whatever reason, you can be sure that even in these little circumstances, God ultimately gets the glory. And then we read on in verse 18, many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So a third thing that was a result of this spiritual warfare is it led to revival and spiritual awakening. Sometimes God uses this spiritual warfare and the visible nature of it when it does break into the realm of time, space, and matter to get people's attention. And, uh, and so I think it can lead to revival. Uh, notice also they had came and brought their books and burned them. It led to great repentance on the part of these that had been trifling with spiritual warfare. And they said, whoa, I don't want any part of this. And people in the ancient times believed that the power of the sorcerer's uh, uh, incantations and rites came from their secrecy in these books. I talk a lot about that in the next uh, volume. And so... The fact that the converted Ephesian magicians disclosed these books and brought them openly showed their genuine repentance. And, and 
the burning of these books in public showed their repudiation of what they had been doing. It showed great repentance. Now, Luke doesn't disclose exactly what silver coin he's talking about here when he says 50,000 pieces of silver was the value of all of these books. But there are really only two options, and let me just illustrate the significance of what happens here by putting it in modern terms. If we were to assume that the piece of silver that Paul is talking about here was an ounce, an ounce of silver, so 50,000 one-ounce pieces of silver, at today's rate, which is about $20 an ounce, today's market value of silver, we'd be talking at about a million dollars worth of magic books. That after they saw this spiritual battle, they said, that's it, I'm done. And they, they burned up a million dollars worth of books. Now, if we assume that each piece of silver was a silver drachma, uh, which was a day's wages in that culture, uh, that would mean we had 50,000 pieces of silver, each one worth a day's wages. So I did some math, and uh, let's assume that the average person works 260 days a year with time off and weekends and whatnot. And if we assume, assume I'm making some uh, total assumptions here that may or may not be valid, but I'm just trying to get a stake in the ground. If we assume the average first year out of college salary is $55,000, that comes to about $212 a day. So a day's wages is $212. So 50,000 days wages would be $10.6 million in today's standard. So somewhere between a million and $10.5 million, either way we're talking a huge uh, sum of money, these shysters said, we've seen enough, we're done. And that was one of the benefits or one of the consequences, I should say, of this spiritual warfare. And then fifth and finally, it resulted in the growth of Christianity. So don't think that this battle, even though the enemy won it, was meaningless. It had a lot of consequences. This is one of Luke's many progress reports that he gives throughout the book of Acts. The Lord, word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. So spiritual battles have consequences. So are you ready to go behind enemy lines? Well, sometimes we have to, and I think we're going to see that more and more as we you know, get closer and closer to the rapture. But regardless, before venturing where angels fear to tread, we need to remember a few things. First of all, spiritual warfare is not something to trifle with. The enemy doesn't really care who you are apart from Christ because apart from Jesus, the enemy is always going to prevail. And spiritual warfare has consequences. So the takeaway is stick with Jesus and the enemy will flee. Uh, we know that. James says, submit to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist him using spiritual weapons. And never forget the words of 1 John 4. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Let's pray together. Father, I, I thank you for just this fascinating account that we can learn so much from because your word gives us so much about spiritual warfare and the spiritual battle and the reality of the spiritual realm. And I pray that we would take these principles with us today, tuck them away, and that your spirit would remind, them of, remind us of them at just the right time as we see the spiritual battle unfold in the days and weeks 
the months to come. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.